This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by HBO's Succession. Power, politics, and money, it's all in the family in this provocative, funny series about a highly dysfunctional dynasty. When Logan Roy, Brian Cox, CEO of the world's largest media and entertainment conglomerates, considers retirement, each of his four grown children follows a personal agenda that doesn't always sync with those of their siblings or of their father. IndieWire hailed the second season of Succession as the best show on TV, and it was nominated for 18 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series. Check it out now. Welcome to the 300th episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I am still Eric Cohn, the executive editor-in-chief critic, joined as always for six years by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. It's kind of nuts, Ann, when you think back on this, turning 300, because it's always been... I feel old enough as it is. (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, we're actually recording the day before my, my... birthday and you know i always think about you keep like, joking that you're getting younger like uh, benjamin button and i, I believe it's true that you know back when we started this podcast i, I felt sort of like I, I didn't feel like we had like a very specific plan in terms of what we were doing and one of the things that i was thinking about in terms of you know its longevity so far is that that's kind of been helpful i mean you know, yes, we, we sometimes veer this way or that way, and some people don't like the interruptions or whatever, but I do feel like we live in such unpredictable times, and the entertainment industry keeps evolving, and it's never given us a shortage of stuff to talk about. We yeah. don't need a formula. The industry gives us constantly new formulas to just react to, and that's what's been fun about all this. That's what I was thinking is, all right, so we're going to look over um, some of the big uh, things that we talked about over the course of these six years. And if we go back to uh, 2014, um, one of the things we talked and debated about at the time, Interstellar, uh, the Chris Nolan movie, and of course, that's been playing in theaters during the pandemic um, as the Ball poor movie. beleaguered theaters are trying to get back up and running, which is basically what's been going on this this weekend with Unhinged uh, finally opening um, in the States. But Tenet, obviously, Nolan's new movie is is coming up. And I see I see Nolan. I'm curious to hear what you think about this. I see Nolan as the great representative of the old studio system, the kind of filmmaker who exists on the largesse of the studios, their ability to fund these big budget, spectacular movies like Interstellar, like Tenet, and and their ability to put them out in theaters. And he is the great uh, supporter of the theatrical experience. But what we're witnessing right now in our um, pandemic phase is, is a very um, dramatic dismantling of that old system. That old system is, is, is on its last legs and Nolan is fighting to save it at the same time that we don't know how Tenet is finally going to do if, it's, if it turns out to be the, uh, it, it may not be. Um, the savior of, of the theaters that no well, one maybe we were do. asking too much of tenant in the first place full disclosure neither of us have seen the movie yet but one of the things that's fascinating about the reviews is that they're all over the place they are but interstellar i have to i mean I, I actually liked a lot about interstellar i'm also a science junkie and appreciate the way that he kind of smuggled in some really sophisticated ideas about 
physics and space travel and black holes into something that felt like a big studio enterprise. And that is, I think it puts him in a class of his own. I don't think that even, you know, Kubrick fully did that in terms of how he was thinking scientifically about what, what he was showing us versus other kinds of, you know, cinematic audacity that was on display. But at the same time, you know, it was a, it was one of the more flawed Nolan movies. And it, and it seems like Tenet may fall into that camp as opposed to say we haven't seen it yet but what i'm saying is that the narrative around it can be he can be too smart for his own good he he can can get you all twisted up and and leave you stranded and that's a tricky (laughs) proposition when you're talking about a global pandemic and what it takes to to kind of save cinema necessarily maybe cinema salvation is not a movie that requires you to do intellectual uh you know hoops to to kind of figure out what it's up to um so it's kind of fascinating to think about what what are the challenges when, when do you go too far when is a, a big movie too smart for mass appeal and um and we don't know yet how that's going to play out for tenant but i'm certainly fascinated to hear how people talk about this movie when they get a chance to see it i suspect we're going to have a very slow rollout of, of conversations. And then the when a film actually is available on VOD, there's going to be this sort of spike of, of discourse surrounding it. So it's a very different kind of situation in that sense. I'm fascinated by one of the things that's going on, which is that there was an AV club uh, post today on Twitter about how they're not gonna be reviewing the new mutants because they're not gonna be supplied with a link. I got to see Unhinged, God forbid, I'm not reconnecting it to anyone, but I sort of enjoyed it actually. Russell Crowe is over the top and terrifying. And I went for along for what I was watching on my laptop with a with a link, which is certainly not the ideal way to do it, but better than going to a theater. And if they're not, uh, so the new, new Mutants isn't gonna be screened for anybody. You There's no what? links, unless it's you have to go to the theater to see it. But you know what, I mean, this is, they're dump. They're basically some things never change. They're dumping it. Yes, they don't want to be reviewed. If yeah, they I mean, wanted to be they reviewed, with, they'd make it available. Yeah, I mean, this is like the standard operating procedure outside of a pandemic, too. And so I think it's, you know, it's not the movie. That's but this is a different level. Movie. This is like saying, take your life in your hands if you want to review it. That's a different thing. Well, I mean, in that sense, you're almost saying like they're exploiting the pandemic to bury the movie because it's even easier for people not to go see this. And they're contractually obligated to put the movie out at some point in some fashion, presumably. And it's in their favor to just dump it now as opposed to say next year when people will trash it even more. So this is one of the movies that's got caught in the Fox uh, Disney transition and it's been moved around many times and they're putting it out no matter what. So here's my question, um, Eric, how are we reviewing the new movie? Well, the, the, as we are recording, those conversations are ongoing. But what, I, what I'll say is this, is that, you know, everything now has to be evaluated in a way that we weren't evaluating things before. You know, it used to be if you had a limited window of opportunity to jump on a news story that was geographically specific, you, you just did it and you didn't think about liabilities like this. And, and obviously situations like this give us pause. And so we have to exercise judgment around something that I don't think most of us would have in the past. And so, you know, whatever the final decision is with this particular film, it, it's not being done lightly because we just can't make decisions lightly anymore when it comes to putting people on the ground. Now I have been in places where I could feel more at risk than if I was staying at home. And some, and sometimes I've done that for the purposes of my job. You know, I've said on the podcast, 
was willing to go to Telluride if it happened. So there, there is this really fascinating process going on now in terms of individual responsibility versus, you know, corporate responsibility. And All right, Eric, I'm going to ask you, would you go to a theater right now if it was open? Yeah, I'll go to a theater, but I'm, I'll go to You've a gone to drive-ins. I've gone to drive-ins. That's yeah. no big deal. Well, and I've, I've, I've certainly put myself more at risk than, than other people. And I think from an epidemiological perspective, you know, that there are things I've done that I probably are, are not as, you know, advisable as the healthiest option. Um, but uh, but I, I would put myself in a questionable situation from a health perspective if the job called for it and it seemed like it was worth it. Um, so that, I mean, that, that is a very open-ended uh, equation. But, uh, you know, again, if there was a movie, if a film festival going on in New York right now, well, yeah, I'll go to see a movie in New York. Also in New York, cases are pretty low. So the risk factor here is not the risk factor in another part of the country. I'm not a doctor, though. So, so I we had a London critic go to see Tenet in a screening room. Yeah, right. So Tenet screened in an IMAX uh, uh, in, in London. For so it was a big house. Yeah. And uh, with so that, lots of that's space. obviously ready made for social distancing. But when you get down to it, there's still some kind of risk in play there. I mean, people are sitting indoors there's air circulation. So uh, there isn't a safe, a safest option to go to a movie theater aside from not going to a movie theater. Although if you look at the way China's doing it with all their automated things, they, they seem to have figured out some kind of equation to minimize a lot of risk and, and have contact tracing that's much more advanced because their uh, privacy laws are much looser than ours so they can track people much easier. So um, there's, it's, it's going to be an ongoing question here, I think. But uh, it, it also is, I don't think there's one specific answer in terms of how one handles these kinds of questions as they come up. And it'll be interesting to see what other films are subjected to, to that situation. I mean, we know we're not going to Toronto, but Toronto says they're going to have some kind of in-person component. So what is the risk factor in going to a screening room there? I mean, they, we, don't, we don't know how to assess this in a universal way. I think if I'm invited to an IMAX screening of Tenet, which I certainly am hoping to be, I will go. I think I will do that. I well, won't go to a theater, though. I'm not going to say you should or you shouldn't, but, uh, you know, I think that a lot of us are probably thinking that it would be good for us to see Tenet, you know, <laughs> be able to have a, a say in this movie. Meanwhile, we're going on vacation, so we're taking yeah. our uh, chances. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, Tenet is opening on my birthday, but not anywhere near me, so I'm not going to be celebrating that way. But... Um, but you know, it's 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 always interesting. This time of year, usually we're we're processing so many different kinds of movies that uh, we don't we don't know how they're going to play out. But we're anticipating a lot, and and right now we're not anticipating the same volume of of really intriguing, no. worthy but, movies. There could be a lot of good movies in the fall festival. It won't be hard to cover everything we need to cover at Toronto and and New York. So speaking of New York, one of the films that debuted there back in 2014 was Citizen Four. That's an example of a documentary that debuted at the New York Film Festival and then went on to win the Oscar. It was kind um, of a surprise too. That was a great screening. I was there. It was a big, big deal. You know, yeah. It was like, First, we found out that Laura Poitras was there for, for the Edward Snowden thing, you know, a couple months early when those revelations came out. And then it turned out there was this movie that was done in secret. And then it turned out the movie was this really terrific kind of real-time thriller, basically. And it was just such a cool kind of encapsulation of the moment. And going to that screening was really great because it just felt like this was the movie that, um, you know, sort of 
could electrify the conversation and to have a doc do that and then win the Oscar. It just felt like all the right pieces were in place. And it was a good win for Radius, which, uh, you know, was led by Tom Quinn, Neon. So uh, there's a direct connection between uh, the success of that movie and sort of the success of Parasite just in the past year. So I think that's kind of fascinating to see. Neon's been on a very positive uh, trajectory building on success, but so have documentaries been. And and I think this is an interesting turning point where I think you could say that the golden age of documentaries started to take off after 2014. It's been in the works for a while. And now, oh my God, I track documentaries. I make a, even, you know, it's a thing. I, I try to keep track of, of the good ones, the ones that are going to actually be in the Oscar race. And there are too many of them now. There's way too many. I don't understand I don't know how any about. of them get traction. No, it's, it's, it's a, it's an occupational hazard. I'm, you know, we had it. Ted Sarandos on last week and he was saying that the success of Tiger King could lead people to watch more docs, which, you know, it's pretty good. A lot of people are saying they're why. watching more docs. But, but I think also like the idea that it could actually get people to watch more foreign docs is really interesting with the foreign uh, membership of, of the doc branch that was just, you know, there's more, for, more international um, that they, it is a very expansive field. It's not a genre as it's often been referred to as. And the cool thing about say a citizen four was that it, it didn't need to even be talked about as a doc. It was a news story and it was also a, you know, almost like a narrative. It was an thriller. entertainment. You know? It was a traffic accident. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, uh, uh, and then the other big movie of 2014 was Birdman, which um, I don't know. I guess we could talk about Searchlight as the kind of old theatrical. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, I remember going to tell you right a year in 2013 and sat, not because I knew him or anything, next to Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuritu for 12 Years a Slave. They had a surprise screen of 12 Years a Slave, which ended up being a whole thing because like, Tiff didn't know it was going to sneak into Telluride, but, uh, but he was sitting there and he was just like at the festival. He didn't have a movie that year. And then he came back with Birdman. And somehow that resonated for me because it was like, he was in the process of like rebranding himself. You know, he became Alejandro G. Iñárritu and he made this whole, this very like kind of personal auteur movie that was also snazzy and fun. And the way that Searchlight picked up. Also playing around with that long single take thing. That yeah. became a thing later on with other yeah. filmmakers. But I thought it was it was interesting because it was like Searchlight did a really good job of playing into that narrative of like the auteur redefined, and it's pretty hard at the studio level for for many people to pull that off. And we well, they know what they're movie. doing, absolutely. But, yeah. And that was pretty. They played good. it perfectly, and then he went on to now. do very well with The Revenant uh, as well, and and Leonardo won his his Oscar. Um, but but you know, didn't he? Am I making that up? You did win an Oscar for the Thank rest. Thank you. I always question you didn't myself. Just, like, make it up did I remember it, that? Really yeah. Uh, but but it's it's interesting to think that that Searchlight now is is no longer um, necessarily uh, they're they're being challenged because of the pandemic. They're being challenged in terms of of how they take their movies to the festivals. How they you know they're not really except for Nomadland. They're holding back on the rest of, of their slate. As Nomadland is like an obvious festival movie. I mean, it's, it's interesting that even in this context, they can pull it off because obviously a lot of big companies are probably questioning, not just Netflix, or a lot of companies are probably questioning the value of going to, a, of going to a, a virtual film festival and also the liability of having any kind of physical component 
attached to that. So, so they were very smart to take one film, play it at all four festivals, because Telluride is actually doing a drive-in premiere of it here in LA, and make it, um, you know, I don't know how to explain it, to, say, to take one movie and get as much out of one as they possibly could across four festivals and make it a thing. And then they held everything else back. Yep, yep. And, and honestly, you know, a movie like that, which again, is another one we haven't seen, but it seems like it's being positioned as, you know, a film that, that needs that kind of special aura around it because it's, it's not going to just sort of immediately stand out from the crowd without that. So yeah, and they're making uh, they're they're kind of I mean Chloe Zhao made a splash obviously uh, before, um, but this is a chance to really brand her and introduce her to a wider audience. The writer was a splash for a certain audience and certainly very small specific indie. Yeah, and it's like the movie she made in between the writer and um, the Eternals, which is like a big superhero movie. So it's like you know, the, the, the idea of somebody being able to work in the system and still do something that's very individualistic or whatever, something that people will want to commend. So it seems like a smart awards play. Maybe some of that. She seems like, like a Taika YTT who can go back and forth, yeah. be a real yeah. actor, you know, play the game. So, so if we move on to 2015, we've got George Miller, the, the Fury Road year. I remember going to see Fury Road before Can. They did it, Warner Brothers screened it before the festival. And it was like an interesting one because, you know, that was a film where it kind of felt like you could go either way. It might didn't have to be as satisfying as it was to be at Can. If it was just George Miller, who's an auteur and it has some stars and stuff, it could work as a red carpet movie there. So it was such a welcome experience that this film was better than the Mad Max movies that came before it that you know even George Miller at at his advanced age could deliver something that felt like a real boundary pushing experience and uh and then the way it just kept going that I remember making great big uh arguments for it as an Oscar contender and people were laughing at me really at the beginning of it but it was one of those movies I think it got 10 nominations. It was one of those movies that was so um, authoritative on every craft level that the Academy, of course, responded to it and and rewarded it. I mean, they didn't reward Charlize Theron, which they should have. But um, and and now George is uh, preparing a a new one, uh, a prequel without Charlize. But before he does that, he's going to do that 3000 years um, of longing, the, the El- Tri- Idris Elba and and Tilda Swinton movie that that he's been preparing a more personal film for quite a long time. Yeah. So, but that was supposed to shoot during the pandemic. So it's we'll been see how that goes. But if we jump ahead the next the next year, 2016. What a fascinating contrast because you have the year started with Birth of a Nation being this movie that seemed like for Fox Searchlight a total. I was at the screening there right? at Sundance and it and played then, like crazy. Seventeen and a half million dollar deal. Right. And, uh, and everyone was like, you said it was going to be a big Oscar movie. And let, let's, let's be clear. It looked, uh, based on how it, it played, I, I was in. Yes. I, I thought the movie was a little cheesy. Uh, I, we, we definitely went back and forth a bit on it, but it didn't mean that it wasn't going to be an Oscar player. Stuff happened, and the Nate Parker story came out, and and you know that was and he mishandled it. Everybody was, tried to help that. him. Everybody tried to to give him the advice he needed, and he would not 
apologize. It's like, he's like Russell Crowe and unhinged, you know. But then comes Moonlight in the fall. And, Sticks to uh, his guns. And, and Barry Jenkins' film ends up being this, this beautiful surprise uh, that... Total know, discovery. It yeah. It's on every level and makes, what, like $50 million worldwide or something crazy? I mean, that's another example of something that's really disturbing to think about this year if such a movie were to arrive such a discovery it that that's, that movie may that exist movie. again and how do you how do you allow it cannot it? happen it can't be done or or i would unless they you. do it later but there are no festivals later but, unless but it's I sundance would, i i'm gonna push back on that a little bit because i'm an optimist and maybe an idealist but to me it's like these movies are never easy sells and the idea that the infrastructure to get them out there doesn't exist right now doesn't mean that there isn't some other way to generate excitement around something smaller and different that actually could resonate for a larger group of people. My argument for this year is that critics will be more important than they've ever been. Which would and be your awesome. job will be to make that noise and, and, to, and to make it at the end of the year with, with the critics groups, exactly. they will have more impact the than they've ever had before. Exactly. And even the globes, God forbid, uh, those of- <laughs> We'll see on that front. <laughs> it's, it's really disturbing every I, I don't mean to laugh at all I'm being I, I, I it's tragic I'm sorry <laughs> they keep dying the people on. from the press how many of them are going to survive they're all very old <laughs> yeah. well you know we can make that joke about the academy too just to be clear I mean there's a lot of old people there too but there are fewer uh, Hollywood foreign press anyway they all these groups are going to be much more uh, have more impact than usual uh, but I argue no they it would be very difficult for a moonlight to happen without any film festivals but you had in 20, 2017 we started the year with the surprise midnight screening screening of Get Out and that was pretty cool as a festival phenomenon because it also was a studio movie. I mean, Universal put that movie out. So Get Out was going to have a big platform from the get-go. But to me, it did seem like Sundance helped kind of establish the initial enthusiasm in a way because it was pretty far ahead of it. It was like a couple months before it actually came out. And it played, so, it was a really smart gamble because there was so much excitement. It was sort of like confirming the intrigue surrounding this movie and Jordan Peele becoming a director and stuff. So. All of that played in, but I would argue just in terms of the um, awards trajectory for that, that became such a huge hit that it became such a huge phenomenon and it was such a crossover hit. It wasn't just a horror movie. It was an adult movie. It was a movie that lots of people took seriously and it had a level of... Um, um, gravitas that could not be ignored in terms of the larger conversation. And so it was fun and it was a huge success. I actually compare Get Out to Parasite. The, the two things are very similar because they, they were serious at the same time that they were fun. And, and they, they were given a lot of credit for Gravitas at the same time that they were enormous box office hits. So, so they, they both did really well as a result of that uh, over the long haul. And the other festivals that, played a part. Yeah, no, and, and, and all the way through. I mean, there were, he, he worked the, the, the regional ones by the end of the year, too. So it's fascinating to see that narrative play out. And, you know, he continues to, to reap the benefits of that as, as, a, as a serious, you know, auteur now. The whole so that was the year that Call Me By Your Name broke out. 
Yeah, uh, again, totally that was the other big way. hit at, at yeah. Sundance, and and it established uh, Timothy Chalamet, um, and that's been fun to watch. This is a movie star, a good old fashioned movie star, just like Leo back in the day, uh, new fashioned. Our uh, yeah. the younger generations, uh, Leo, if you like, remember yeah, on some level. I mean, uh, on a romantic. Movie. Oh, they love him. They, they love do, but him. I do. I, I'm just. I mean, look, we haven't seen Dune yet, and and I. I wonder how much of the potential that we saw there has yet to be fully realized. I feel like a lot he of- He did very well in Little like, Women. Um, that seemed to play uh, perfectly well. Character in that, he was not the main character in that movie. I think that on some level, it's like the Call Me By Your Name seed that was planted is one that we are we are watching very slowly develop. But that fandom wants to grow with him and they're going to follow him to the next chapter. We're just not quite there yet. We don't know what that looks like. Let's see what happens with Dune, for example. So, but you know, at the end of that, the other thing that happened that Well, year, Rob Pattinson would be another example of yeah. someone who well, broke out with a movie out with a yeah. very strong female uh, audience and then True. grew over the years because of his uh, attraction to yeah. auteurs. He, when he broke to, out, to be he the broke guy out. that can now be in Tenet. Yeah, but know, he broke out the as Batman. a franchise star first, uh, you know, and then sort of went back to these little auteur side groups and stuff. But the point is to grow beyond that sort of uh, giggly female fan base. Yes. Well, hopefully (laughs) they'll follow him and grow up too. But uh, the other thing that happened that year, which we obviously have to acknowledge is the New York Times story on Harvey Weinstein and the birth of the Me Too movement, which we are still, you know, feeling some- It's still playing out. It has not gone away. Some of the best cultural reporting of, of, of the century, maybe of all time. And certainly one that I think spoke to some much wider systematic issues that we are all still trying to- We're all still through. catching up with it. It's a, it's a fascinating um, accounting that's going on in Hollywood. Needless to say, the most recent example um, was was the Ron Meyer and uh, Kevin Sujihara within uh, seven months of each other uh, losing losing their jobs because of the same femme fatale, this uh, Charlotte Kirk. Um, the idea that you can't, um, there was a time in Hollywood when these things would be uh, uh, brushed under the rug and you would keep your job and you would be forgiven. And yeah. you can't have that anymore now. The corporations in- are not yeah. tolerant of it. We are living in a different era of accountability now and one in which uh, nobody is, can, can, can sort of pretend that they aren't guilty of some sort of transgression. I and mean, nobody is perfect. We all you know, have certain biases and, 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 and sort of behaviors that can lead to bad decision-making. The question is, when has someone cr- crossed the line? And I think that for a long time, because most, a lot of us didn't always know when those lines were being crossed, it was easy to pretend uh, that they weren't ha- that just wasn't happening or that it was a punchline or whatever it was and now it's like when you look at it well a lot of us knew that Harvey was an awful human being we didn't he was toxic to the question time. and we yeah. all knew that we did know that and so now I think that you know it was a wake-up call to all of us oh if somebody is like that that's not it's not a joke it's not a caricature it's a reality look at the president that we got around that same time you know it's we're, we're still sort of dealing with these things culturally. And, and I think it was a fascinating turning point to work through it at that But time. I will say this, there are a lot of people who have issues with what they call cancel culture. Um, I, I feel very strongly that, that the whole I mean, Me Too I mean, Time's Up movement is a strong 
positive movement yeah, and, I mean, and that we have to follow it through. And I'm glad it isn't just temporary and it isn't going away, but um, uh, it, it, it is an interesting time. I think cancel culture is, is a, as a term is something that a lot of people don't always fully understand and that I, and I, but I agree with you. Ultimately it, it represents positive forces that are trying to understand when behavior is uncalled for and irredeemable essentially. And so you have to look at those positives and figure out how to sort through it through your own sort of filter to, to, to recognize what the new normals are. But then next year, the next year after that, we got Green Book versus Roma, which wasn't quite as incendiary, let's say, but uh, it certainly was a, a fascinating reckoning because the, the whole Green Book conversation really was this like gradually unfolding thing where it was like, at first it was this hit movie out of Toronto and it got a lot of good press around it. I'll acknowledge that I, I thought it was pretty charming. And then- I liked the movie and I, I understood the- that it was a total Oscar contender because I know who those voters are. And I understood that it was just the kind of racial drama and comedy that would charm them yeah, I know and make you them understood feel that. good I, about themselves. But, but, but I have to say, I, I like- Justice crashed it. I'm, I will fully acknowledge it. I, I feel like I liked it more than I, than I did the, the second time around and that, that on some level I felt a bit hoodwinked by a movie that was giving too much credit to its white character as a redemption story and falling to certain tropes with its black character that would be... Well, like- we have writers like Tambeo Benson, who's on staff at, at IndieWire, who are, who are pointing these things out. You know, sometimes you need another point of view to show you how you're falling into a familiar old trope, you know? And and we needed that. And it's important. And that is a huge deal at Penske Media, at IndieWire, at different publications around the country, at the LA Times or whatever, to make sure that those voices are coming on board so that we can all hear them and recognize that we do not see things necessarily the way that they need to be seen. Having said that, the success of Roma was awesome for the way that it centralized an indigenous Mexican woman and got her nominated for an Oscar. And, you know, as somebody with some Latin American heritage, I was certainly excited about that on a personal level. Uh, But I also don't think that you need necessarily to have that personal connection to something like that to be excited about that kind of success. So if we can get excited about representational stories irrespective of our backgrounds maybe we can all get better about also being upset about the same kind of misrepresentations and that's sort of the biggest challenge that i think a lot of us have to deal with roma also represented something else i mean beyond the fact that you had this uh major hollywood director alfonso Cuarón, going back to his roots in mexico and telling a very personal story that that resonated across the globe and played across the globe on 190 countries on netflix that green book versus roma uh split in the academy was vis visceral and and vicious and, and it all had these to, years later, and what do you think? Was Spielberg really trying to take out Netflix that year? Absolutely. <laughs> what a drama that was. But and he didn't was. realize that he was going to be portrayed as the grandfather, as the old guard, 
that he, he really didn't know that that was how he was going to play, you know, how it was going to, he backed off. He totally backed off. He didn't go to the meeting at the, of the board of directors. You know, he, he totally folded on, on that. Uh, but, but he, he definitely had been arguing uh, for the theatrical win uh, for, for Green Book. And finally, those forces won that year. Meanwhile, pandemic on, Ron Meyer gone from Universal, the company that released uh, Green Book. Meanwhile, uh, big studios totally on the ropes. Theatrical model totally on the ropes. And Netflix reigning supreme. We had Ted on the podcast. And- I saw that coming. I mean, yeah. it was like very obvious who, you know, it may have been that, you know, old studio mentality sort of won the won the war, but the battle, the battle, the battle. they won the battle, but, but Netflix won the war. And I think everybody kind of knew that was happening. Absolutely. At, at the same time, you know, it was, it was interesting that in 2019, uh, Irishman won nothing and Parasite becomes the big movie of the moment. And that was, there was no question that Parasite benefited from its traditional theatrical rollout. And the absolutely way- true across the whole globe. And it went, can you know, Palm Door win through the fall festivals, you know, play confirmation that that worked at that. But it was also huge all over the world. But the question then is if we didn't have the pandemic, right? We were going to go in, we're thinking like after Parasite, there's going to be this huge market for all, all these people are going to go to Cannes and spend a lot of money on, for, on non-English language films and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden the pandemic seems to have gotten in the way of, of whatever the potential was there, but also turn, allows Netflix to loom large in a way that I think is an open question of would, would we be in that moment that right now, or would we have these contenders coming out of Cannes that were you know, angling to be the new parasite and, and doing more traditional releases instead? I mean, we would, we would. would. I mean, we, we no. totally would. And, and I'm worried, and I know you are, uh, this is what I was saying about Moonlight earlier. I mean, there's some films that would have been there that we may not see until next year. That's all. I mean, most of the really good, big titles are waiting, basically. And, and we're seeing a bunch of other things instead. Um, and, and maybe we'll see things that we wouldn't have gotten to see otherwise, and we'll pay attention to them and bring them some, some, some spotlight. But, but I, I, really, um, I really think that, that this is a quieter, smaller, year. I mean, Netflix does have a, a big lineup um, of movies, and I'm curious to see if they're able to get the kind of attention for them. Even they used film festivals, you know, to, to bang the, the drum. I uh, think so, that, and, and he did say last week, Ted Sarano said, you know, they hope to go back to him. I, I don't think that he was just saying that to be friendly. I think that if that platform of a physical festival came back, they would probably want to use it so long as there is media there assessing the films and, and buzz coming out of those things. But they used those festivals. They got lots of attention for the Irishman. I and mean, he claims that the Irishman did really, really well on the, on the site, um, you know, and got a lot of, of, of eyes on it. Uh, they needed to build that attention and, and, and focus around the Irishman for that to happen. So it's, they're going to have to figure out other ways uh, to, to do that. Um, so where are we now? We've got we've got uh, pandemic shit going on. Three hundred to go. I mean, the thing is that 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 I 
uh, find gratifying about the work that we do is that it doesn't have, the industry doesn't have to be healthy for the art form to be worth talking about. And artists don't necessarily choose their vocation because it's a great business to be in. And it doesn't strike me as a situation where we're not going to have films to talk about or an infrastructure that's trying to support them. The question is, how big and successful is it going to be? And are we just going to be, see a greater consolidation of media and, and you know, basically like only a handful of, you know, the of temple kind of movies produced for a digital market as opposed to, you know, the kind of more expansive set of possibilities that we've been experiencing these last few years. I well, we're going to learn a lot about the theatrical uh, future over the next few weeks as as Unhinged and, and Tenet uh, play out. And um, I'm very concerned about the future of, of theaters. I want them to survive. Um, I, I mean, I think there's they reason will, to be but it, it's going to be a different world. There's reason to be concerned, but there's also reason to be excited by the innovation that, that is around the corner because it's so unpredictable. Because I, I don't expect the multiplex. I agree with that. And, and the thing is, I know I'm an optimist, and I know that some of that optimism is unrealistic, but I also think that there, there's, a, there's a healthy reason to invest in it because the more we talk it through, the more that we arrive at certain kinds of possibilities. And I think that that's also what's happening behind the scenes with these different companies and consultants and so forth. Everybody's trying to figure this out. It's not like people are gonna be like, well, movies were a nice idea for 120 years. Let's uh, move on to some other thing. And then, you know, my VR headset's gonna be the only thing keeping me busy. I mean, I love my VR headset, but I think that movies ha probably have another century in them. So, uh, so we'll see how it goes. But I have to say, and. 300 episodes in, I know sometimes we talk over each other, whatever, we're kind of all over the place. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we're on totally different planets, but it's always a blast to connect with you as, as, as a colleague and a friend. Uh, sometimes you were room and board for me when I was out in LA in the first couple of years we were recording. We've driven around in cars and, and, and recorded episodes and done them in front of live audiences. And it's just been a great adventure, I think, because uh, it keeps it, it keeps us on our toes to, to talk through this business and, and this pandemic. There are times when I want to wring your neck, Eric, but for the most part, the I love you very much. <laughs> Back at you. All right, Anne, well, you enjoy your vacation. I'll try to enjoy mine and I'll see you next week. Thank you.